welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Hey, thanks again for joining us for the Setzer Church Leaders podcast. We want to let you know that we had some technical issues with this recording, which is why the audio doesn't sound consistent throughout the interview, but the conversation still comes through clearly, and we're sure you're going to find something helpful and insightful in the conversation. Now let's dive into our discussion with Jen Wilkin. Welcome to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and today I think you're going to enjoy our conversation with Jen Wilkin. Jen is a Bible teacher and the author of several books, including 10 Words to Live By, Delighting in and Doing What God Commands, and Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds. Jen's passion is to see others become articulate and committed followers of Christ, with a clear understanding of why they believe what they believe, grounded in the Word of God. But before we hear from her, let's go to Ed Setzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. That's a long introduction, but nevertheless, glad to be here. This is actually the last time that um, that I am serving in this role of Wheaton College. We'll continue the podcast, mm-hmm. but that's outside of taking a one year away from Wheaton College administration and professor. So anyway, glad to have Jen Wilkin in the conversation on the very last one that I'm doing while being the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. So you'll have to change that now. You'll have to say he's just some guy hanging out. But anyway, uh, Jen Wilkin, a lot of you are familiar. You've engaged Jen's work and more. And so we want to have her on the podcast and she'd be very gracious to, to join us. She's written a series of books. We go through them and we'll link them all in the show notes as always. But we're going to talk about studying and engaging the Bible, passion for Jen, and also ask some questions kind of that flow out of that. I think if you're a church leader, this is going to be helpful for you at multiple levels. It's going to be helpful for you as an engager of the Bible. It's going to be helpful for you as a leader, want to help other people engage the Bible. And we're also going to address the issue of how women might want to, we might encourage and empower women in engaging the Bible as well. So let's just jump in and start with some questions. What are the uh, primary challenges, Jen, that you've encountered when it comes to helping people engage the scripture? Remember our audience is pastors and church leaders. Mm-hmm. So what do you see? What are the challenges? Help us to think those through as church leaders. Well, I think the biggest challenge that we're facing right now, um, which is just sort of a product of being in an instant gratification culture, is that people think that learning the Bible should be easy. They think that they should just be able to spend you know, time in the word and that their obedience to actually have proximity to it should yield um, a particular kind of gain for them. And, um, and so I think what we have a lot of times in Christian subculture is the mindset of if I start my day with my time in the word, then my day will go well. And if I don't do that, then my day will go poorly. And that that is like the 15 minutes or 30 minutes in which I'm supposed to draw something from the scriptures that is going to supply me for that day. Uh, And so um, consequently, the ways that we approach the Bible are often, uh, or even the ways that we go and find, you know, resources that are approaching the Bible are geared toward that mentality. And they're not giving us a long-term sense of what it is to spend time in the scriptures or a sense that this, like any other spiritual discipline is something that we labor for. It's something that requires effort on our part. 
Um, and so I'd say that's probably the biggest obstacle is that people expect that uh, even though we know that to be a follower of Christ is to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow him. We think that applies to things like giving our money and, um, and allocating our time in the day. And we don't think that it will be hard for us to open the scriptures and draw um, the necessary wisdom that we need from them. Jen, when you're uh, talking with young people, um, especially those who don't really see the relevancy of the Bible to modern life, like what do you say to them? Well, first of all, if someone is feeling that way, I can be pretty certain that they haven't actually been given much of a view of the whole story of the Bible. Uh, And so often, especially with young people, what we have done is said, you know, they're really busy. They got a lot of things pulling on them. So um, so they just really need to focus about 10 minutes a day on this. But what they know is that everybody else who's asking something of them is saying that they need to invest significant amounts of time. So, I mean, especially like think about student ministry, right? Um, right at the point that uh, high schoolers are being taught foreign languages and chemistry and physics and calculus, um, and they're spending hours on those topics. And they're also devoting hours and hours to being on travel sports teams or learning musical instruments. Um, We're messaging to them, hey, just give a little of your time to this every morning. Uh, And so there's a value statement that's associated with that. This costs you very little, therefore you value it very little. So I, I often, if I if I meet with some someone who is younger who doesn't value the scriptures, it's usually I wouldn't say it's their fault. It's because the person who should have compelled them to value them didn't know how to go about it. And our our mo has been to lower the bar at every turn with what we're asking of young people instead of doing what everyone else is doing, and that's raise the bar and require more of them. People people run toward things that cost them something. It used to be, you know, 10, 20 years ago, things like Bible quizzing and it really mm-hmm. helped youth. Uh, 10, 20 engage. years ago, 10 to 20 I years ago. So, I know, right? I think it was longer than that. Yeah. Maybe some places still are, yeah. but I remember it. <laughs> Like Bible drills. Yeah, Bible drills. Sword drills. Sword yeah. drills. Yeah. Like they're not as common anymore. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you're seeing, um, you know, uh, initiatives that are helpful in helping young people value the Bible and engage it for themselves. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we do at my home church is we make sure to incorporate middle schoolers and high schoolers in the in the adult Bible study settings, because those Bible study settings are designed for building Bible literacy. And what's amazing is that middle schoolers and high schoolers are learning literacy tools in their English classes at school, but no one has told them that they can use those same kinds of tools to read the Bible. The Bible is magical to them uh, instead of being the inspired word of God that is in book form. And so obviously the Bible is much more than just a book, but it is a book and it obeys certain rules when it is being read. And so we actually help them to feel comfortable with their sacred texts when we give them simple literacy building tools like, hey, look up a word in the dictionary, Uh, read a book of the Bible from start to finish. Don't pull things out of context. Stay put one place. Uh, Know the historical context before you read a particular book. Think about who the author is. Why would he have written from his particular perspective in his particular way? Um, What we've instead given them so often is, hey, just open it up and read a a little passage out of it and then really think hard about it for a while and then ask how it should change you today. And so for many of us, we've found that we don't actually know after reading. I mean, good grief. If you're in Leviticus, you're going to do that with your Bible reading, you know. And, And so then the feeling is, well, gosh, God isn't really showing me anything out of this. So 
either there's something wrong with me, you know, maybe I'm not a really good Christian because is this what everybody else is doing and it's working instead of having a sense of the Bible is to be approached the way that you would approach any book. It's a, it's a very special book, but we approach it the way we'd approach any book with the same level of respect we would give to the works of Shakespeare or chemistry textbook. Uh, and we start to read it in that way. And then they realize, oh, I actually can do this. And then they begin to recognize that the yield they're going to gain from it, just like the yield from any book is a cumulative yield. It's not necessarily an in the moment yield. One of the things that, uh, I have used a word to describe you and your ministry and your leading in these conversations is seriousness. I'm like, you know, Jen takes it seriously. There's a seriousness about it. And I think a lot of people don't want seriousness. So they, 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 they want, you know, light and fluffy and happy. And, um, and yet you really encourage people to delight. I mean, the, again, the title of the new book where we would talk some about is 10 words to live by delighting in and doing what God commands, which is of course flowing out of the 10 commandments. So uh, how do I take serious and delight? And you can feel free to use the examples of, uh, of the, of the 10 words to live by. So how do I take the Bible seriously and bring a seriousness to it? and yet find delight in it as well. Yeah, well, you know, Psalm 1 opens by describing the righteous man as one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night. And I think that we um, we think about meditating on something is sort of like just thinking really hard about it for a few minutes. Um, but what meditating on something is, first of all, it's, it's an act of the intellect. Um, and it's really mulling something over and giving it a chance to expand on you. And so uh, Ten Commandments are a perfect example of how we don't do this because most of us would give ourselves, you know, if we were grading, uh, grading ourselves on them, we, most of us would say, well, I get about an 80 out of a hundred on that. You know, I haven't murdered anyone or committed adultery. Uh, and so uh, that just shows that we have a surface level understanding of what God's commands are really saying and that we're looking for a bare minimum way of reading them instead of an expansive way of reading them. When we make meditation on them, Instead of asking, have I done the bare minimum? We begin to ask, how many ways can I not just be a not murderer, but be a person who is a life giver in all of my relationships and in relationships that I might not even have yet. And that, that takes time uh, because everything in us is bent toward not doing that. We want to be concerned with trivial matters or um, with our circumstances at the expense of devoting time to seeing what the scriptures have to say um, in terms of long-term investment. I think a lot of church leaders, specific, specifically pastors, you know, they get into a mode of sermon preparation, and that's kind of primarily how they're thinking about Bible engagement. Mm -hmm. um, what, what should church leaders keep in mind um, when they're helping their leaders engage in the Bible, adults engage in the Bible? Like, what should they be thinking that might be most helpful to, to, to those that they're leading and shepherding? Well, I think a really important paradigm shift that we need to have happen in the church, and this is not a new thing, this is an old thing that we need to reclaim, is that we understand the environments that we have in the church is needing to not all be just passive environments. We need active learning environments. And so, you know, especially I would say even in my own denomination, there's this massive emphasis on preaching, on the preaching event on a Sunday morning. And I'm all for preaching. I think that preaching event matters. But we also need to recognize that what's happening on Sunday morning is a passive learning space. It is not a dialogue um, and it's not a place where the people who are sitting and receiving teaching have necessarily done any work themselves before they sit and receive that teaching. 
which means that people will tend to receive that teaching far less critically than they would if they had actually spent time in the passage themselves before they received the teaching over it. But I would say that over the last 30 or 40 years in the church, we have seen uh, develop an expert amateur divide. And the expert stands on a platform and communicates the specialized information to the amateurs who sit in the pews. And not only have we seen this, but we have seen both the expert and the amateur um, embrace those roles fully. The people who are sitting in the pews think that it is the job of the person on the platform to do the work for them. And the person on the platform thinks the same thing too. So the person on the platform basically infantilizes the people who are sitting in the seats and the people in the seats basically uh, deify the person who's on the platform. Is it any wonder that we see so much cult of personality in the church today and so much disillusionment? Because then when the rubber hits the road, the person in the pews has basically a secondhand understanding of their sacred text at best. So, um, so what I think that church leaders need to be thinking about is how do we get back to active learning environments where we follow a principle similar to what Howard Hendricks articulates of never do for your student what your student can do for themselves. And we begin giving tools to our learners so that we let them see behind the curtain. Like, I don't want people to hear me finish a teaching and think, wow, that was amazing. How did she do that? Yeah. I want people to think, I see what she did there. Yeah. I could do that. And so I think that's the key shift that we need to make. And it's not a shift towards something new. It's actually a shift back toward a, a, just a traditional paradigm for how learning takes place in the first place. You know, but that it's, that's kind of, that's killer. And part of it, the reason it's killer is, is that we have a vested interest in the system as it is. That's right. Um, so pastor and church leaders are listening and, and we kind of bemoan the fact that people are passive listeners, um, infantilized audience uh, but we kind of, I mean, they sort of want that because they want to come and enjoy that. And we sort of like that. And, and if you teach them otherwise, it's hard and, and, and it does require a shift. And one of for me, I was, when I, I, when I teach preaching, one of the things I try to use as an example is when I was taking, uh, the Moody church through, I think we we're just going through the book of Matthew. We were just going through the book and I went through and I showed how, you know, Matthew's clearly trying to equate Jesus with Israel mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, you know, I kind of explained to people, you just see people saying, wow, you know, I never saw that before. And I, I just stopped and said, and just so you know, that's like in every first year Bible college seminary textbook. So, so I needed to kind of say to them, this is new news to you. And I really want you to experience the, the discovery of this, but you didn't need to hear that from me. This is not, I'm, I'm not like, I don't have some special super knowledge. I literally can look at a first year Bible college textbook and see the pattern that Matthew's laying out. So, so if we're all have this vested interest, pastors love to be affirmed. I love when people come up to me and say, they would say, you know, someone might say, I just never understand the Bible. Like when you teach it. And my response is, but that's not what we want. We want you to understand the Bible as you read it, engage it and study it. So how do you kind of break the cycle that really we're all kind of vested in these pastors and church leaders? Listen to me. A lot of them really, I mean, like me, they really like to be told that when people listen to them, they understand the Bible and it's deeply meaningful for them. How do we break that cycle? I mean, I like that too. I just don't want that to be the only thing that I'm doing. Um, I am further along than my students are. They are going to learn things from me that they wouldn't necessarily see themselves. We know that people in the scriptures are given a gift of teaching. And so we're not diminishing that at all. But we also know that the Great Commission is charging all of us to teach people to obey all that he has commanded. So there is some teaching function just to being a disciple. It's drawing someone along uh, as you were drawn along first. And that means that we have to give people 
tools, not just information. And I think, you know, as we watch the culture around us grow increasingly post-Christian, people may think that they'll be content to settle for a secondhand understanding of their text, but it just won't sustain them. And we're going to see more and more. I think it's behind a lot of the deconstruction conversation that's happening right now is that people are abandoning a faith that they haven't ever really even known. Um, and I don't, that's not everyone. I think there are legitimate reasons that people are, I think that's a legitimate reason that people are reevaluating things. Um, and I don't think it's their fault. I think that we have not compelled them to something that is, is more beautiful and deep. Uh, we've said, we'll do the thinking and you do the feeling and uh, feelings are not a reliable, you know, what's the saying? Your, your feelings are real, but they're not reliable. And so then when things get difficult and I'm looking at my feelings as the gauge of my faith, it's no wonder that people are thrown into a tailspin. We owe our people a reasoned faith, a reasoned belief, a thinking faith. Um, and so uh, I think that's the gift that we can give them is we're not just training you what to think. We're training you how to think about uh, issues of, uh, of systematic theology, certainly, but I think also biblical theology. I think when people are able to understand themes that stretch from Genesis to Revelation, it does it goes a long way to affirm uh, the authority of scripture because they understand the cohesiveness of the message and the timelessness of it. I really like that you brought up the idea of like creating active uh, spaces. Um, and um, as a church leader, that's, you know, there's, so there's Bible study curriculum, there's a small group curriculum. Um, what are some other ways that you're seeing um, people engage the Bible that's kind of creative, you know, outside the box? I actually don't think outside the box is what we need. I think outside the box is what we have. I think we have a thousand different approaches that are, um, that are drawing people into uh, an encounter with the scriptures that is heart before head. And, um, and what we need is to reclaim a, a more um, straightforward idea of how we learn. And so, uh, for example, if you go pick up a typical curriculum from the Christian bookstore, and let's say it asks you a, a question that's difficult to answer. If you've done many of these, you know that you can just keep reading a little further down into the next paragraph and they will answer the question for you because they don't want you to feel like you couldn't answer the question that was up above. I feel like you're giving away trade secrets right there. <laughs> <laughs> because we think that's what people want. Yeah. But again, yeah. that is that is infantilizing. And, yeah. and, and what we want a good curriculum to do, like if you're the person who's responsible for vetting curricula for your church, for your discipleship arm, you want a curriculum that raises dissonance, not one that relieves it. Uh, and, you know, this is this is a real issue with our learners is that they all own a study Bible and they're accustomed to reading a passage. And when they don't understand what it means, they immediately pop their eyes down and read what the study notes say. And so in the moment that that dissonance is created, they relieve it immediately, which sabotages the learning process. Um, anybody who's in education theory can tell you that that moment of dissonance, the moment where you know what you don't know is when learning begins. And it's something that you have to sit in. Yeah, I call it dwelling in the I don't know. Uh, and when we do that, then then our mind is actually prepared to receive um, the, the learning that happens when that dissonance is removed. But when we're seeking to mitigate that immediately at every turn, when we're just like Christian Google for them, um, we're actually holding something um, uh, back from them that they very much need. Um, so, you know, like if you think about if you've ever been lost in a major metropolitan area uh, and maybe you couldn't get your, you know, your map uh, app to open up. Uh, and then when you finally 
get the right route to get there. Like that adrenaline rush and that sense of, oh gosh, I don't know where I'm going is what actually prepares your brain to remember that route for the rest of your life. Well, no, so it's a, and I love it. And again, seriousness, we keep coming back. Again, that's my description of Jen Wilkin. Um, the, um, when I, I'm, I'm a professor as of this last two more hours, and then I keep bringing that up because I'm feeling very excited about that. Uh, this will actually come out while I'm on sabbatical, but, uh, but, but, uh, but as a professor, I just got my teacher evaluations and you've been, you've taught class four, you got my teacher evaluations and do you read them? I read them. Do you read, okay, I read them. So, um, and what's interesting is, is when I read them from the students, the students, I mean, there are critiques here and there, and I, I actually do take, I actually take them seriously. But the students seem to love um, when I lecture, but my colleagues, when my colleagues evaluate me, they say I lecture too much. Um, again, this is, I'm going sabbatical, so I can just go. They say I need to do more learning, experiential learning, a little more hands-on, more conversation, break people into groups, have this kind of conversation. But that's not generally what I get on the student evaluations. However, the research shows, Dr. Laura Barwegan, one of our brilliant professors who constantly tells me I lecture too much, says the research shows that people learn better even if they evaluate you higher or lower for doing this. They learn better when you don't just lecture. And when it comes to church research, we've actually found that sermon, pastors think sermons are the number one things that disciple people. People think it's like number four. And so, so pastors, again, this is our audience, pastors and church leaders. Uh, it's actually small groups, it's community, it's it's personal spiritual growth, things of that sort. But you've got a whole room full of, or, or an iPod full of pastors listening, and they're not persuaded. So I'm, I want to go at this one more time, because I find you just significantly compelling on this topic, because you're a dynamic communicator. So as a dynamic communicator, how do you say in your resources, and we're going to get to your resources in just a moment. In particular, we're going to talk about, um, about I'm going to come to talk about in his image. I'm going to talk about women of the words and the other things in just a minute. But how do you as a communicator who's doing video curriculum often make sure this kind of engagement is in what you do? Well, I, I construct all of my studies around what I call the three-legged stool. And so and the first leg is individual study time. And as I was describing earlier, that workbook, that, that work that you're going to do before we get into the rest of the method is, is going to raise dissonance. You're going to finish answering those questions and you're going to feel like you didn't get straight A's. They're going to be, you're going to want to leave some of them blank, but you're going to hazard a guess because I will have yelled at you to do that in the opening video. Uh, and, and then after you have your personal study time and that dissonance is created. And by the way, I do this in the context of studying entire books, of the Bible from start to finish, because we don't want our people to just have spot knowledge of a few, few passages. We want them to have that context. Uh, but then the second leg is group discussion time. So you're going to get together with some peers and you're going to talk about what you learned through that, that individual time. You're going to, I jokingly say, you're going to pull your ignorance, but that's, you know, it's really so that you can compare and say, well, I paraphrase this, this way, how did you do it? And, and see if there's a consensus between you and the direction that you're moving as you walk toward interpreting and applying what you are learning. And then the third leg in the stool is sitting and listening to the teaching time that, um, that I, I give. And that is meant to address, it teaches through the issues that the homework has raised. So you create the dissonance and then you pool the dissonance and then you relieve the dissonance. Um, and the thing is, is like, um, because they have spent an entire week in the passage before they hear me teach on it, 
I can't hurry past the difficult part. Like the, the challenge before me is so much more exciting to me than when I have to teach a group of people who haven't looked at the passage first and you're able to do so much more with it because they are invested in the process. So, you know, when you initially make this shift and you start asking more of people, um, they will say it's too hard and they'll say they don't have time for it. It is a slow, slow boil uh, if you start to introduce this to your church. But I will say that once they have tried it, they can't go back. They can't go back to that other stuff because it just begins to come alive for them and they begin to feel the confidence. Uh, I always say that with one of my studies, you know, like um, a study of uh, Genesis, I, I want you to know, uh, have a working knowledge of the book of Genesis when we finish, but more than that, I want you to be more comfortable in any book of the Bible as a result of the tools that you have practiced using in this study once you complete it. So, um, you know, with preaching, there's only so much you can do to make Sunday morning an active, more active learning environment. But a big thing you can do is publish the passage you're going to be in the week before so that people can spend the week reading it repetitively. Um, give them an opportunity to get to it before they hear you teach on it so that they've already done some thinking on it themselves beforehand. Um, with the three-legged stool, if I put that group discussion time after my teaching time, then I know that that group is only going to talk about what I taught. They're not going to stretch themselves to talk about what they're thinking and learning on their own. And so uh, it's, it's critical to think about the order in which those things happen to draw students along um, and to get them to, to do the work themselves so that they're owning the process. I love that. Um, I also want to point out, Jen, that while you were talking, some of my colleagues may or may not have been texting, making fun of my iPod reference since I said <laughs> iPod, but, but I'm a little bothered by that because you know that that's like right now I could show you that's the coolest fashion accessory right now is old tech like iPods. So don't judge me. Don't judge me. It's retro. I'm like, my daughter has, anyway, moving on from there. So let's, let's change the conversation. I just mentioned my daughter. Let's talk about, um, about women and the Bible. Um, and, and again, um, we wanted to have you on talk about the Bible and Bible teaching. Um, and, but you specifically have written what really became like a, a blow up book. I mean, people were talking about everywhere, women of the word, how to study the Bible with both our hearts and our minds. Now, again, we mentioned earlier, you're writing, you know, we've written multiple books and we're kind of walking through some of the different ones that are here, but talk to me a little bit about, um, is we all study the Bible, why women of the word rather than people of the word and help us understand some of the nuances there. Well, I think anyone who's read the book knows that it could have been called people of the word, but I tell I you, I've, I've read the book just to, yeah, yeah. But I honestly, I can't apologize for it. Uh, at the time that it was written, to be frank, I don't know that anyone would have let me write a book that was addressing both men and women. And I think that if it had addressed both men and women, probably neither would have been interested in picking it up. Fascinating. And uh, I think I maybe read it because I felt like I was breaking a rule or something. Yeah, yeah. Donna was, Donna was reading. It was on our nightstand, so I stole it. Yeah. Did you Did you rip the cover off, or did you no? Did no, I didn't. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't when it wasn't yeah. a paper bag or anything. It was. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so when, um, I have, you know, my whole, um, my whole adult life, I have, I have taught women and I, I don't apologize for that. I, I, I love it. Um, and if there are men who are helped by what I'm putting out there, then that's great because the method of study is certainly not gender specific, but at the time that I wrote women of the word, it was very apparent to me as a ministry leader that women were being resourced only at the feelings level for almost across the board. Uh, and, and there was no thought among women that they were supposed to bring their minds to their love of scripture. 
uh, and that was being reinforced for them. And so they were existing primarily on a diet of devotional content um, or uh, inspirational content, or um, they would say, uh, I'm doing this Bible study. And this will still happen to me today. Women will say, oh, I'm doing your Bible study uh, in his image. And it takes everything in me to, say, to not say, that's not a Bible study. That's a trade book with some discussion questions at the end of each chapter that you can use in a small group. But we had ha we had a habit in, in women's circles of calling everything a Bible study. And therefore, you had women who had been in church their entire lives who still didn't know the Bible because they were not learning it in any kind of systematized way, uh, or they were just getting it all secondhand through commentators uh, or through inspirational writers. And so uh, I've jokingly called it the pink ghetto. Uh, but I, I have felt called to the pink ghetto, to the estrogen pond. That is my, that is my ministry area. Uh, and, and reminding women that when the command is given to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, that that is given to both men and women, and that they will not stand before God and give an account for how well they have loved him with my mind or their pastor's mind or Ed Stetzer's mind or Beth Moore's mind or whoever, they, they will give an account for how well they've loved him with theirs. Uh, and so, um, Women of the Word attempts to give them just an entry point um, to, to regarding the Bible as a book that is accessible to them and that they can learn over time in ways that are deeply transformational and that are relational ultimately, that we don't, we don't learn the Bible for the sake of learning the Bible. We learn the Bible for the sake of learning the character of God and being in relationship with him. Yeah, and another thing it does is it gives a vision for young women who feel called to be Bible teachers like yourself um, to really have the courage to step into that. And so I'd love for you to speak to church leaders about that. How, how might they nurture you know, young women who feel called to dive deep into the Bible and to, to maybe even be a teacher of the Bible? If maybe some of this is your own personal story as well. Yeah, that's always kind of a funny question for me, Daniel, because um, what I want to say is, well, you do it the same way that you would do with any young man who who is who is feeling that call. Um, and I think that often we 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 think, oh, I, could, I couldn't possibly, you know, the, the church leaders, um, pastors think, well, I couldn't possibly, you know, mentor a woman. I mean, that would be scandalous. And I'm thinking, well, where exactly are you planning on teaching her the Bible? Like, you know, like, you know, in a church conference room, you can sit down and meet with a woman in your church or with a group of women or with a mixed group of men and women and teach these principles. In most cases, it's expanding a circle that it already exists for, for, for pastors uh, to include a vision for having women in, in, in those learning environments as well. Uh, but it is fascinating to me. We have a category in the church, a very well developed category of what it means to be a qualified man in leadership. Um, and I would love for us to have that same, a similar category for, for women who are standing up to teach. We, we vet and think hard about the men that we put in front of rooms. I think we should do the same thing with the women who are teaching in our all-female spaces. Um, these women want to be held to that standard. They don't always know how to gain access to the resources and the training that they need, and they don't always have the confidence to reach out and ask for it because there are sometimes social penalties associated with that uh, or even just um, barriers to entry that might be um, things like I mentioned where it's like, oh, I couldn't possibly ask him to meet meet and help me with this, or, or he might think that it's inappropriate or that I want to, you know, um, step into an area that he doesn't want me in. And so often women need to be invited into those spaces rather than, um, you know, sitting and waiting for them to emerge and, and wave their hand in the air. Yeah. I want to encourage people who are listening. If you uh, didn't listen to a prior episode we had with Kristen 
Padilla. She talks some about this. She's at the Beeson Divinity School uh, Center for Women in Ministry and really talks about this because, you know, we recognize people have different theological traditions, complementarian, egalitarian, and more. Uh, She talks about this is an appropriate path for whatever tradition you're in is to find that place and space for people to to step in. And again, I I do want to commend people to to uh, hear hear what what Jenda said, also read Women of the Word, but to hear about that important place of development, finding opportunities, and more. Um, one last question um, is the our audience. You know, it's it's kind of a maybe a weird space in some ways. You got pastors and church leaders. It's literally got church leaders in the name. So one of the things that um, just transparently I have found, I've gone this back and forth weirdness about. Because I really, when I when I preach, I preach the books of the Bible, and I'm really digging into the book of the Bible, and I'm loving digging into the book of the Bible, and and that can take over my devotional reading. And then I hear people say, you know, Pastor, you shouldn't just read the book of the Bible that you're preaching. And I'm like, but I'm loving this. And so I feel guilty, and I'd start reading another book of the Bible. Oh, and by the way, I don't read the Bible. I don't read, I don't use a study Bible. I actually have edited study Bibles, but in my yeah. personal Bible reading, I can't because I look and I look down at the note, and I'm like, do I agree with that? How would I say that? So I like, I have to, I almost like the horse needs blinders on. I need no notes when I read the Bible, but all that to say, um, what exhortation would you give to the pastors and church leaders who are listening here who for them, they're engaging the Bible probably in some way at work, in my case, loving it and maybe going even deeper just because they want to go down and learn more, but to make sure that they're not just reading it as a job, as a performative experience, but something more. And maybe even, you don't mind, share a little of your own practice on that as well. Yeah, I actually get this question a lot. And I, and I, sometimes I get this question when I'm on a panel and I hear other people answer differently than I would. And I do think some of the way we answer is related to just personality and personal habits and, and, and the way that we think about contact with the scriptures in general. Um, for, for me personally, I do not distinguish between what I'm doing personally and what I'm doing on a teaching platform. Some of that is because I really need to have meditated on it myself and have it really hit me down deep before I want to stand up in front of a room full of women and exhort them on obedience or, um, or draw out the wisdom principle for them. You know, heaven help me if I'm out teaching my own um, lived experience of how the scriptures are shaping and forming me. Now, sometimes we have to teach things that we don't have um, that much experience of ourselves, because when you're teaching entire books of the Bible, you don't get to choose which parts to skip. Right. Um, But I also think it's important to be honest about that in in that teaching moment and not um, not pretend to have had more personal experience of a particular um, idea than, than we have. Um, we do want to practice what we preach or preach what we practice as much as we can. Um, so I do not distinguish between the two because for me, the whole process is deeply devotional. It just is. I don't feel like I need a separate thing to give me the feels. Um, and maybe that's selling short, you know, what that other thing could be, but I do know that there are people who feel like if they are preparing it for teaching, it just feels too clinical for them. It doesn't feel like, and that's just not my experience of it. To me, it's all, all the same thing. I'm going to, I'm going to use the phrase, the feels next time I'm doing my devotional time. Yeah. That's a good word. You've been listening to Jen Wilkin. We want to encourage you to check out more about her ministry and her books at jenwilkin.net. Thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews like this one and other great content for ministry church leaders uh, at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments, leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find and benefit from our content. We'll see you in the next episode. 
You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.